You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that this episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning, enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rob, where... He had served up a few curveballs for me with topics like Tesla Q1 earnings and the Gamma Hammer. So that was a super fun conversation that I suggest you check out if you had not already listened to it. Mart, always great to be back with you this week. How are things where you are in Germany? Sunny Saturday. All good. Performance is good. Not yet vaccinated, but it seems the country is getting out of the worst of, of that pandemic. So reasons to be optimistic. Indeed, sunny Saturday. I like that, actually. That's a good good slogan. What a difference a week can make. And I am actually not referring to the Gates divorce here. It is exactly one week after Chairman Powell voted that the, after the post-FOMC press conference that the Fed had not even begun to discuss raising interest rates that Treasury Secretary and former Fed Chair herself, Yellen, suggested that the Fed would need to do exactly that. Specifically, she said... It may be that interest rates will have to rise somewhat to make sure that the economy doesn't overheat. And one can certainly imagine that as soon as those comments hit the tape, her phone lit up with calls from various governors and the president of the Federal Reserve. By the end of the day, she walked back the comment. And for the rest of the week, the media was bombarded with quotes from various Fed members reminding they intend to be patient with any rate hikes. And this patience is likely to become more difficult to defend as the economy is operating at a robust pace with more and more activity coming back online. And next week's release of the Consumer Price Index could prove is especially troublesome. Last month, we saw an annualized rate at 2.6%. And that is, of course, more than the Fed's 2% target and forecasters for next week or forecast for next week. They're looking for 3.6% annualized. So we'll see how that all pans out. Moritz, always interesting to see what's been going on in your world, so to speak, your portfolio the last month. Anything that you've noticed? I think there's probably plenty of things. So why don't we jump in as we normally do? Yeah, the great trend-following run continues, Niels. It is really amazing. It's probably one of the best runs I've ever had, or at least I can remember. I'm up 37.7% here today. It's amazing. Beginning of May. That is amazing. Well done. It was my system. It wasn't me. I just put the trades in that the system spit out. But look, I, March, I finished March 3.19. Then April was about 12% up for me. And, and this month, May, it's 6.45% uh, month today in May. And unsurprisingly, the, the grains are a one-way street higher. Bean oil, soybean, corn, soybean meal. It, it's amazing to just wheat, to just see those markets go higher and higher. When you look at the chart, it, it looks like this is speeding up. At some point, it has to stop. So I'm already scared of the day when it turns around violently. But I would have thought that it should have, doesn't matter what I think really, but it just moves. Look at lumber. 
obviously in in true as, as you and uh, Rob have coined the term last week in, in true caveman trend following style I'm obviously long the full position size still in lumber I haven't reduced any of that thing I'll just run with it and it goes limit up day after day after day so I I log on and I go yeah this is the day when lumber will turn around lumber will do minus 10 or minus 15 today it'll, it'll go limit down now it opens at 4 p.m. my time and it takes about five seconds and the thing is limit up. Boom, the, the day's done in lumber. <laughs> There's nothing to do. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm up a bit more than 6% month to date. But all the, the other markets too, carbon emissions on an amazing run, now worth more than 50 euros per ton. I think not even a month back, it was at about 40 so it's done 20% in a month. And many of the other markets too have very nice trends. Equities, of course, moving higher. Bonds, I think I got heard a little bit yesterday when yields dropped and, and, and bonds rose. I'm short most of the bonds, not all of them. I think I'm long the BTPs, but most of the other markets, I think I'm short. So it's just, it's just a nice time with that portfolio. I'm also happy that I got more positions on again and, and, and more diversified in terms of longs and shorts. I remember the period January, February, when I was essentially exclusively long positioned, not, not a single short position on. And I like it more the way it is right now with a couple of shorts, a couple of longs, predominantly long still, but not entirely. And really all the asset classes are in there. So it's just nice to see those markets trend. It's one of those times where you definitely have to say to people, especially if you have clients, you have to say to them that this is important to internalize because you would want to go back and remember this period. When we go through one of those periods where you once again have to deal with a drawdown of some sort, maybe a long one, maybe a deep one, and where you start to question the strategy. And it's super important that people experience this these strong runs and then make a note of them. But on that happy note, so to speak, not in quite the same caliber, I have to admit, but our own trend-following strategy also had a pretty solid start to uh, the month of May. 40 out of 55 markets in the portfolio contributed positively last week. Not surprisingly, it is the markets, or I should say not surprisingly with what's going on in the markets, such as commodities, that's where we saw most of the value being generated and really across all commodity sectors. And then they were joined, like you, with uh, equities and currencies last week, where we saw some pretty solid contributions. The only sector for us that was down last week and so far this month is really fixed income, and it's pretty tiny. Best market for the week on our side was corn, Dow Jones, and copper, by the way, reached a new high, 10,417 per ton in the early Friday morning London trading. And that's actually slightly higher than the 2011 high. And we've seen 30% year-to-date gains in copper and doubling since March of 2020. I know we're going to talk about more about commodities later, so I'm not going to go more into that. And the worst markets for us this week was really the UK gills, so the bonds in the UK, German bunds, so the German bonds, and the Nasdaq. But all in all, a pretty strong week. My own trend barometer finished at 48, slightly positive, so it continues to move higher. It's not actually even a strong reading, and that's probably because that the concentration of trends are somewhat a little bit narrow, at least according to this reading. And so, yeah, all in all is in that on that side. On the volatility side, it's interesting to see the reaction. We saw this very small 1.5% sell-off early in the week in equities. 
And the VIX actually rose pretty sharply. So there is some nervousness uh, definitely to be seen in the markets. It also shows how sensitive really that a lot of these things are to just a slight degree of market, wouldn't even call it distress, but there we are. And of course, you may wonder what Janet Yellen would have said if the markets had initially rallied. So anyways, the S&P 500 did end up moving higher. It broke 4,200 and it made a new all-time high after the softer-than-expected jobs report we saw Friday. The VIX during the week actually briefly touched 20, going a little bit higher. 2185, I think, was the high on Wednesday. And that's not seen since March. And then we ended the week around 17. So we did see some weakness coming into it as equities moved higher. And um, of course, momentum is pretty strong at the moment. And maybe some of the strategies that we track and generally strategies are pretty long by now, which means there aren't that much room to add more longs. So we'll see how it all plays out. Should there be a sell-off and how quickly some of these strategies will take off risk and whether that's going to cause any meaningful volatility. And of course, the Buffett ratio, I think, actually made a new high as well. And it certainly is higher than it was in March 2000, where it made some significant highs. So we'll see. We had a small positive week in our volatility program. So so that's all fine. On my own trend-following portfolio, where I can be somewhat more specific, month-to-date up 4.2%. Uh, year-to-date up 18.56%. Performance this month really coming from uh, Group 1 and Group 2. Group 2 ahead with 2.48%. Group 1 up 2.21%. And then the fast-reacting models got a little bit whipped around during the week, so they're down 50 basis points for the month. Best sectors so far, base metals uh, by far, and then followed by grains and FX. And really the only sectors to the downside were equities and then a tiny loss in precious metals. Single markets that so far is standing out on the upside is copper, aluminum, and the 10-year notes. And at the bottom, we really just see DAX and NASDAQ, and that's mainly from the shorter-term models or fast-acting models. The week started out really um, buying a little bit of corn, bean oil, lean hogs, and some lead and some RBOB. And then later in the week, when equity sold off, I did actually get stopped out of some DAX, long DAX, long SMI and NASDAQ. And then the week finished with a, a long entry in the euro. And the risk to stop rose to 16.28%. And that's up from 11.97% last week. So there we have it. We've got some We've got some questions from John and Brian today that we need to deal with. You put in some interesting topics as well. But before we get to this, there were some... Something I wanted to actually bring up with you. I know you did not have time to watch it, and that's perfectly fine. And it is a little bit of a detour from what we normally talk about. But I found myself last Sunday doing something that I would normally not do, and that is to watch a live broadcast of the Berkshire Hathaway annual general meeting. And of course, it is fascinating to watch Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and listen to some of their comments to to the questions they get and their general observations. And you and I, and of course, the whole podcast, we talk a lot about how really the future is uncertain and how we think the best way of dealing with an uncertain world is to follow rules. And that's why we think trend following is the best strategy you can think of uh, and has certainly worked for many decades. But I think what Buffett did at the AGM was quite interesting. 
Because I think in this, in a similar way, or not in a similar way, but in some way, he alluded to this. He talked about how investors right now who are sure that certain things are just going to continue to work, right? And we know that there are quite a few themes right now where you say, yeah, this is definitely the thing. We should just do that. But then he wanted to, I think, tell some of these, and these are probably newer or younger investors who may not have seen as many cycles as we have. But he did something interesting in order to illustrate that the world does change and you can't really be sure that what you think works well today and will be the winners of the future will actually be the winners of the future. And what the way he did that, to make a long story short, um, was by pulling up two slides. And the two slides are similar in one way because they show the 20 largest companies in the world, but they show them at two different times. So the first slide he showed was the 20 largest companies in the world at the end of March this year. And it's dominated by U.S. companies. I think 13 of the 20 are U.S.-based companies. There are a couple of Chinese companies, a Korean company, a, Fran a French company. And then in second place, I should say Apple is number one. Saudi Aramco is number two. So the slightly state-owned, I, I could put it uh, nicely, state-owned company is number two. Anyways, and there's of course a lot of tech companies is really the main five, six companies. Are, they're all tech companies and te we've got Tesla. We even got Berkshire Hathaway actually is, is also there. But anyways, he shows this and he shows this list of the largest companies in the world 20 years, uh, sorry, um, only a month ago. Then the next slide is also the largest 20 companies, but this is from 1989. On this slide, it is mostly Japanese companies and a lot of them are really banks. Very few U.S. companies, one Dutch company, that's it. Not even a chi single Chinese company. And I think what he wanted to illustrate is that if you had invested according to what, what you saw in front of your eyes back in 1989 about the winners and how they are going to dominate the world, you'd be very disappointed nowadays because none of those 20 companies made it to this year's list. And I think that was a nice way of illustrating this thing about how unpredictable the future is. And so, yeah, just wanted to bring that up because I think it ties into a little bit about what we talk about. And before I want to hear your thoughts on these things, Moritz, and sorry, it's a long ramble now, is two other things that I thought actually was just interesting because you and I know that there's a lot of talk about ESG even in our world, we have to fill out forms and all of that, talking about whether we are ESG compliant and all of those things. And the other thing that people start to focus on, and of course with, with good reason, is diversity in the companies and so on and so forth on board levels, et cetera, et cetera. I noted that there were two motions put forward at the AGM that Buffett and Munger and all of those guys had to vote about. The first one was about ESG because some of their largest investors, some of the U.S. pension funds, I think it was CalPERS and a few Canadian pension funds, so really big investors, even in Berkshire Hathaway, they had put forward a motion that Berkshire Hathaway should adopt a policy where they start reporting on ESG every year. And because the underlying companies don't do it, so they, they feel they should do it. And then the other thing was a motion on diversity. They should... I, I can't remember exactly what the motion was about, but it's certainly about diversity and in, in, increasing that, I think, within Berkshire Hathaway. It was interesting to see that 
clearly from the vote, both Buffett and Monker completely didn't like those two and didn't want to hear anything about having to report on these things. So the both motions failed completely once you saw the, the count of the vote. So I just thought that was interesting as well because there is a lot of focus on the financial industry and many industries trying to improve those things. But clearly here is one of the biggest companies in the world, certainly one of the biggest investment companies in the world, not wanting to deal with that kind of issue. That was my long ramble. Moritz, are you still there? Yeah, Yes, I am still there. <laughs> Look, ESG is a theme of our time. It, it It is actually the theme right now. In Europe, at least it is. There's taxonomy here that forces investors, forces investment managers to take care of ESG, integrate it in their asset management, make products available to clients that conform with uh, European Union ESG taxonomy. If you're presenting one product that is not ESG rated or not sufficiently ESG rated, then as of next year, there is an obligation for you to present an alternative product that is ESG rated to your prospective clients. So there's a, a massive change ahead of us and it's already underway. By the way, as a result of that, I, I shouldn't say I, I together with my team, I've hired the global head of ESG from Allianz Global Investors so that we as a firm become more thoughtful uh, in that space and develop a larger footprint in that space because I personally, I'm as a systematic trader, trend-following trader mostly, I don't have a deep background in ESG. I know what it stands for, but I cannot really speak about the details. I'm, I'm just not qualified to do that. So we needed to get staff on board to do that because clients request that. Large mm. institutional asset owners have no way around it any longer. So it is there and I think it's going to stay. Now, an interesting question that comes to mind, therefore, is how does that show up in asset prices? And again, I didn't do a deep dive analysis, but when you look at some of the reports, obviously the people that have ESG products to sell, they say, this is a better investment process. Being ESG-minded either improves your returns or reduces your risk. It may reduce your risk because you're spotting a company that has a governance problem, for instance, earlier, and therefore you exclude that company from your portfolio. Maybe Wirecard is such an example. I don't know. Not every ESG investor had Wirecard excluded from its portfolio, but some had it excluded. And obviously, if you're not long Wirecard, when it goes from 120 to zero, that's a great thing. Whether it's return enhancing, if you have companies in your portfolio that pay a lot of attention to doing the right thing, being inclusive and take care of the environment, all of these things, this is very nice. I want to be very nice to our environment. I don't want to destroy the environment. But at the end of the day, as an investor, what counts is the bottom line, I guess. At least to most people in our space, uh, they want to make a return with their money or they want to have a return on capital with their money. And it, it seems also to be the case that at least over the past years, as ESG has become such a big theme, a lot of money has been allocated to that space. And simply because of that flow, because of that flow into highly ESG rated stocks, those stocks have outperformed stocks which didn't have as high ESG ratings, right? Because they were in high demand and the other stocks were not in high demand. So the alpha that is reported presently by ESG firms saying, look at this, I've outperformed the market and I have an ESG portfolio and hence therefore it is great. That may be a flow-driven alpha question mark. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. I, I simply don't know. There's a possibility that is true. And the other thing that, you know, I, I, I just want to mention that very clearly here. There is, at least to me, 
not a very direct link between having ESG rated stocks or highly high ESG rated stocks in your portfolio. And so this is not an impact investment. Let me phrase it that way. It doesn't have an immediate effect on the world. And let me give an example. Say you have a company that is profitable, right? It, it has an operating cash flow. It, it, it is, pays out a dividend. Its business model is working fine. And therefore, it does not have a need to tap into the capital markets, either from a bond perspective, taking on debt capital, or from an equity perspective through a capital raising. So they can just sit there and operate their business model. If, and let's just for, say that's a fossil fuel company. If you're an ESG investor, you say, no, that's bad. I'm not investing in that company. But what does that mean? That just means that some big, so the, the valuation of that company on the margin will therefore shrink the more institutional investors decide not to put money into that fossil fuel company, right? But somebody else will pick up the slack. Some hedge fund, some investor who doesn't care as much about ESG will now buy that company at an even more attractive valuation. So what did you really change? That company will just continue to do its thing. It now has an owner that is a hedge fund who apparently doesn't, or any other investor who apparently doesn't care as much about ESG. So that means they will, but they're unlikely to go to the AGM and vote with their feet and say, change your business model because they've just purchased that company at a great valuation and apparently they're happy with the way that thing is operated, right? So I guess if you really want to change these things, you need to be an owner of the firm and vote. I guess this is where you have the lever. This is where you can make the change by going to the AGM, voicing yourself, or doing that in a coalition with other stakeholders and say, we want you to change. We want you to have a better reporting on your impact on the climate. We want you to reduce your fossil fuel emissions. We want you to do ABC. And if you don't do that, then we're going to vote against you, Board of Management, and we're going to vote against you, the supervisor. If that's not happening, then some of those companies will, I think, just become cheaper and more attractive to other investors and continue to go about the world in the same way they did before. So it just shows that space is so much more opaque and, and difficult to, at, at least for me, to capture than what we're doing with our completely price-driven, trend-driven type of trading style where we look at price, we look at open, high, low, close, and volume, and that's about it. ESG doesn't enter, doesn't enter our space, at least in my personal trading, it does not. And maybe the, the final thing before I stop is, of course, all of these ESG investors have policies like policies for responsible investment, and, and, the, and they all go, we're definitely not trading agricultural commodity markets. And I still, to the present day, look, I've so many times argued against that in a very friendly way, in a technical way, not only saying, look, we need, if we're participating in these markets, we're improving liquidity, we're improving the price discovery process, we're giving those commercials and those farmers a way out, we're allowing them to hatch the risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Forget about it. It falls on deaf ears. Apparently, they think that the only function of an investor in commodity agriculture markets is to be a long index, long only, always roll the front month type of activity. But that dynamic, at least for us as trend following traders, is completely wrong. We're as likely to be long as we are to be short in the commodities. And we get a lot of blame when uh, you're long crude oil, say. I remember that period of being long crude oil. 
and, and crude oil went to 140 or something like that and it became more expensive to fill up your car at the gas station. And it's like, oh, these bad speculators, they're making the oil more expensive. On the way down, it goes to minus 37, but let's forget it. Like on the way down, it, it goes from 140 to 25 or something like that. We're short. Nobody says, hey, thank you guys. Uh, thank you for making the oil so cheap and, and running it down to 25. The gallon of gas now costs half. No, you're always the bad man in these markets. And this to me is where regulators and these the people that come up with these rules, I think they're extremely short-sighted. They just don't want to see this. It's so much easier to say, you know what, it's bad. Don't do it. You're not allowed to do it. Stay away from it. Okay, fine. Maybe this for traders like us will actually open up some opportunities because those markets will become less efficient as opposed to more efficient when there's less capital impacting them in a structural, systematic way from institutional investors. Maybe that is good for us trend-following traders. Remains to be seen. But the logical argument behind these things is, I don't get it. There's quite a few things to unpack, just as a little bit of comment to what you said. Firstly, just on the crude side, you could certainly also say that, and it's that it's absolutely right that people shouldn't make the call to us when markets are going down and it's trading around 30 or, 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 or 25 because we sold it at 100. We're not the ones pushing the market down. That's what people don't understand. Trend followers, we get in the initial part of the trend. We don't, we're not the ones who buy after it's gone up for three months. We're not the ones who sell after it's gone down for three months. So, so it's funny that you're, and you're absolutely right. We, we do get blamed for it, but it's completely misplaced either way uh, because we're not the ones engaged at at that time of the trend so that's one thing the other thing i i, I thought which was absolutely a, a, a great point you made and that is it is the irony that actually if you want to help the environment you should encourage more people to invest in fossil fuel companies and then vote with their feet it is the paradox that by saying, oh no, you can't do that, you lose any form of having influence on these companies. So I think that's another great point. And I think it shows you that sometimes policies have unintended consequences. And the third point I thought on the ESG side was quite interesting. And that is on our side, we actually had to get our usage fund ESG rated by MSCI, came out with the second highest rating you can get. I think it's called double A. So apparently what trend followers do, at least what we do, is very green. So people should buy more of it if they're into green investments. That's my conclusion. Anyways, joking aside, lumber was the first point you wanted to bring up. We touched on it already. Tell us a little bit about lumber. Yeah, I probably mentioned it already in my intro. Um, okay. Let right. me have a look at my sheet here just to give you... I can, some... in the meantime, while you look at your sheet, why, uh, just to give yep. people the, a little bit of an idea when we talk about quite a strong trend so far this year, it's up 133% just year to date. And just to mention maybe the second uh, most or the second um, biggest run up in a commodity this year, at least in the sort of main ones that I look at, is things like ethanol up 70%, and then you get the lean hawks about 51, 52% year to day. But what's interesting about it, and I'm sure you'll touch on that as well, Moritz, and that is that lumber, and, and you and I talked about the breakout in commodities last summer. I remember it so clearly. We started to say, yeah, after all these years of markets going down, this is a pretty big base. Now it's starting to move higher. This could be interesting, not knowing 
that it would be such a strong return driver, especially because commodities actually have been a drag on a lot of portfolios in, mm. in recent years. And we, you and I all, all often get the question of people saying, okay, but if a market hasn't made money for five years or 10 years, why don't you just kick it out? I think what we've just witnessed the last nine months is a really good answer to that question. So anyways, did you find your notes on Lombard or did we already talk about it? Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to, to mention when I got into that trade, I have it here. It's, I entered the trade on the 2nd of December last year at a price of 252.2. Do you so, know what the low was during the summer? I think it was, I can look it was it up. definitely less, going, less, less yeah, than yeah, 200. Maybe you can look, yeah, yeah. It up. Um, look it up. And, and, and so essentially from that point onward, it's just a one-way street higher in lumber. It's, it's an amazing run. I think it's outperforming even Bitcoin. It's limit up for the past couple of days. I didn't count how many days in a row, but it's, it's probably five or six days or so in a row that it's limit up, making about, what is it, four or five percent, something like that per day. So this is amazing. And by the way, there's one podcast, just to mention that before we speak about the podcast at the end of that show, there's one podcast, an Otlots Bloomberg podcast that I found very interesting where Joe Weisenthal... And, and his colleague, I, I, I forgot the name, forgot her name, I think she's based in Hong Kong, where they interview somebody that is a wholesaler of lumber in the US. And he explained very clearly and very nicely why the lumber market reacts the way it currently reacts. It has to do with a lot of the wood coming to the US from Canada. And Canada has initiated policy whereby there no longer there's regulation. There's, they're no longer allowed to cut as many trees as they previously did because they've cut too much. And they said, look, if we continue at that pace, then a couple of years down the road, there will just be nothing left to cut. So we have to slow it down. And then obviously during the uh, COVID pandemic, people had it completely on the other backwards in, in a way saying, this is going to be, in air quotes, the end of the world. Nobody's going to be building any houses. So we don't need the wood, right? Nobody was ordering it. And now all of a sudden you have that housing boom and people moving to the periphery and getting a second home. And it's the same here. In Germany, the price of lumber is super, super high, probably in Switzerland too. China is buying it. So it's, it's this, this perfect storm where everybody, like the wholesalers of lumbers in, in, in the US, they're caught short. They don't have enough. They can't deliver it. Their only way is to use the futures contracts and pay whatever price the futures markets demand so that they can get their hand on lumber and continue with their building projects. Otherwise, there's penalties if they don't finish the house on time and stuff like that. And the sawmills, they're obviously having a great time because on, on the podcast, they said they didn't really make a lot of money for the prior years, but now they're making it in, in true trend-following style, right? Have, right. Uh, and now there is this year that pays for, for the, the many losing years or the many mediocre years they had in, in the recent past. So I've, I just found this um, podcast interesting because it allows you to take a, a deeper dive into how the lumber market works and how that future markets work and how the structures are from the firm that actually operates in Canada and cuts the tree to transportation, the cost of transportation in rail cars, on trucks, the wholesale industry, until finally your floorboard gets put into your home. Yeah, super interesting. I'm, I'll probably check out that podcast. I find it fascinating. Just first and foremost, so so the prices I'm quoting now is probably somehow back adjusted or whatever, so it may not be exactly the same. But anyways, we did see a low in lumber prices last year, and it looks like on this chart, 
that it was around, say, $300. But on this chart, the price is now $1,670. So, mm -hmm. as you said, it's even better than Bitcoin, which most people probably wouldn't uh, have imagined there would be anything better than Bitcoin that wasn't another crypto, of course. So, But you know what? This is a fantastic time to talk about and to illustrate for us what we've been talking about for the last two and a half years on this series, and that is, this is exactly why you want a truly diversified portfolio, because especially why commodities is a really important part, which most investors don't have exposure to commodities, without a doubt. And I think this is one of the really important roles that trend followers like you, like us, what we can offer people and why we should be, as we've often mentioned, we should be a core allocation at all times because you never know when these things happen. But it is an exposure that most people just can't get or won't get and sh probably shouldn't get because it's a highly volatile market. So if you don't know how to size your trades and all of that good stuff, then it can be quite the roller coaster. So I think this is a fantastic example. I'm glad you brought it up. And from one C to another, because I see the next one you brought up has something to do with crypto. So... <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to mention that now there is a smaller sized Bitcoin contract on the CME. I think it listed on Monday this week. I may be wrong there, maybe the week before, but very recently, it's now one Bitcoin in terms of contract size, whereas the previous Bitcoin contract, which still exists and is more liquid still, is, is five Bitcoin per lot. So five Bitcoin at 60,000, that is a $300,000 notional contract. It's very margin intensive. I've mentioned that before in that podcast for the reasons of volatility and the risk of that thing gapping, et cetera, et cetera. But with that smaller contract, I think it, which by the way, has launched very liquid, came out of the gate and thousands of contracts traded, 4,000, 5,000 contracts, something like that. So it's, it has met some demand. And, and I guess that's good for smaller traders who want to get exposure to Bitcoin through a regulated futures exchange. Of course, mind you, as I've also mentioned on that show probably too many times and people don't want to listen to me anymore, but it, it trades in contango, quite substantial contango, which is if you take the other side of the trade and you do these cash and carry trades, it's a very nice thing. But if you're outright long Bitcoin futures, then you're paying up for the futures. So if, if Bitcoin is at 57 58,000 or something like that, then the June futures is at 61,000, right? So it's, it's for, for a bit more than a month, one and a half month, it's a $2,000 difference and a $2,000 expected roll down per contract, something like that. It's a very volatile, very dynamic basis. It, it changes quite a bit. But people have to bear that in mind. If, if they're long Bitcoin through the futures contracts, then there is that roll down right now. Yeah, so a couple of questions for you, since this is your specialty, certainly compare it to, to mine. Do you think the micro new micro contract will actually become the mo more liquid one? And how many contracts is traded on the main Bitcoin that's been around now for a few years on a daily basis? I can look that up in a minute, but I think I saw four or 5,000 contracts on the micro. Just let me okay. have, a, yeah, no, that's I'll have fine. a quick that's look fine. at the big one. And so while Moritz does that, we will see what he comes back to. But it wouldn't surprise me if uh, certainly the Micro will will gain popularity to a point where it will become the more liquid one. We certainly saw, I think we saw the same more or less when we introduced the e-mini contracts on the stock markets, both for NASDAQ and the S&P. And so, so, yeah. 
Go ahead, Moritz. As of yesterday, as of Friday, they had about the same notional turnover. On the big Bitcoin contract, it's about between three and 5,000 lots per day. Okay. And now on the micro, yesterday, Friday, 20,000 contracts. Thursday, nice. 18,000 contracts. So this is one-fifth, as I've said. Yeah. But we're in the same ballpark already. Yeah, no, that's pretty impressive. And good on CME for... Getting those contracts out, I think they are important. I certainly think they are helping the whole crypto space to become much more accessible for institutionals, investors. Not necessarily because they want to use the futures, but it just makes it more, quote-unquote, legit, so to mm -hmm. speak, that you have a futures markets, I think, as well. And also for hedging purposes, I guess, it's it's important. What's the spread like, by the way? Do you follow? I know you don't trade it so much, the future side, but what's the spread like on a typical day in, in a Bitcoin? So if you were looking at the CME futures and let's just say that the market was trading at 55,000, what kind of spread would you expect on a Bitcoin uh, futures uh, front month, so to speak? Just curious. Yeah, just, uh, just look at it right now. It uh, depends on the time of day, but it's between 50 and 100 bucks. Okay, so not much really for that volatility volatility that's yeah that's pretty yeah, good so, something like that and and they have ethereum futures as well by the way uh, on the cme east and since since a couple of months and yeah. also liquid but, yeah and of course another point you brought up more was that it's not the only cryptocurrency you can now trade as a futures on the cme group and that also may have had some impact on bitcoin itself but tell us a little bit more about the ether yeah so the ether is going through an interesting change changing from proof of work to proof of stake can you explain that? Because just to make sure people, we don't lose people here. Yeah. So Bitcoin is, for instance, a protocol that is based on proof of work. You have to do the work, spend energy, essentially, spend power to solve a complex mathematical problem. And it's like you're proving through your work that you have done it and you get the block reward. There's different protocols that work in different ways. Proof of stake, for instance, where you're securing the network through ownership in coins and, and people staking these coins. That is a more, say, energy efficient way of doing things because it doesn't require the proof of work mining process behind it, but it has impacts on network security. Now, for some protocols and some coins, network security isn't isn't the, the primary thing. They're looking to achieve other goals in DeFi space, etc. Of course, they want a secure network. But when you look into the the Bitcoin crowd, there the security of that Bitcoin network and the nodes that operate it that is extremely important. They there's we're not changing that to anything else but proof of work. We want that to be every transaction that happens on the blockchain. We want that a final permissionless settlement that's irrevocable. So for Bitcoin to fulfill its narrative as digital gold, the storehold of wealth, all these type of things, having that mechanism, that expensive mechanism, is, is probably the right thing. Whereas for other contracts, Polkadot, Cardano, etc., that don't present themselves as a storehold of wealth or a form of digital gold, but more as a decentralized finance solution for certain problems. They need to be doing something that allows them to operate more efficiently in terms of number of transactions, frequency of transactions, frequency of putting things onto the chain, etc., etc. So a proof of stake model is a more efficient setup for them. That is yeah, it's probably as good as I can explain it. And many people can do that way better than I can. But DeFi is taking off 
it is the, the speed with which that industry develops and the speed with which that digital future is built in front of our eyes. Just to give an example, there's now tokenized stocks on Binance, on FTX. You can trade Tesla 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours on these exchanges. It's a token, right? It's a You can put up Bitcoin as collateral. You can put up your fiat money as collateral. But you can trade a Tesla token, you can trade a Coinbase token, you can trade a an Apple token. Those stocks are now tokenized on exchanges. And it, it is amazing that this happens so quickly. There's regulation here in Germany that specifies exactly what a security token, a utility token, a currency token is. So it, it is all moving in that direction. And DeFi plays a, a massive and very important role in that process. I would I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of years down the road, companies wouldn't be doing IPOs anymore. Why would you do an IPO and pay the middleman and pay the bank and you know, get to the stock exchange and pay fees and consulting fees and listing fees and then have an electronic security sitting in Clearstream, yada, yada, and, and, and settling T plus two against cash? Sounds, sounds really dated. Sounds like something from history. If you could also put that on the blockchain and have your company run in a fully digital way on chain, do an ICO, no middleman required, in DeFi space and and have a smart contract that maps everything that happens with your company in that smart contract. The AGM of Berkshire, put it in the smart contract onto the blockchain. It's there for all time, cannot be changed, transparent, done. People can vote. It's All of that becomes possible and Ethereum plays or can play a substantial role in that space because a lot of these smart contract tokens are based off of its blockchain and the ERC-20 token or the ERC-20 protocol. And, uh, and therefore, it's it's off to run and it's outperformed Bitcoin. It's now at 3,500, making new highs. Some people say that thing is going to go where? To the moon, 100,000. I don't know, would be very nice. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't, but the position so, right now is long, right? Right. Have you included Ether now in your trend-following portfolio or...? Not yet. No, it is not in no. my it is not in my trend portfolio, but it is in my portfolio. Yeah, yeah. I just hold it, but maybe I should put it in the trend portfolio. So a question for you. And I do think DeFi is very interesting. So I think definitely there'll be more of that, I'm sure, to talk about. But just a little bit of a question here, and it's just from what I picked up listening to some of these different content creators talking about that. So we always talk about Bitcoin as being something that cannot be changed and it's because of the way that mm-hmm. it's set up and the blockchain and all of that stuff. But then I hear about Ether and I hear something like that there's a new version of it or mm-hmm. 2.0 or whatever. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, so here you have something that actually can be changed. And what's to say that, and obviously I'm based in the Crypto Valley, so what is to say that some of my neighbors here in Crypto Valley, who obviously invented Ether, and actually I saw, it was very interesting, and and of course regret it completely today, but about five, six years ago, I went to a a seminar here in in an impact forum. I think the founder of of Ethereum, certainly one of the founders of Ethereum, came to talk about it and Back then, smart contracts, what have you, it you just didn't really know what it could go or what it could mean. But anyways, back to my question. So the point, so I'm trying to get my head around the fact that here you have something where you could make changes, and therefore it loses. Uh, if that's true, it loses this whole thing about oh yeah, it's all you know decentralized. Nobody can control it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sounds like Ethereum can be controlled. 
Or, no, you need to find the support for these changes, right? If uh, if you're proposing something and then you don't have the support and the community doesn't want to follow along with you, then there's no point in that. Take the easy example of Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. Those resulted in forks. It wasn't a change of the Bitcoin protocol. It was a essentially a conflict between different different parties to that sure. protocol, different people who wanted different things. And, and the only way to resolve that conflict was to, uh, to fork the chain. Now, you can see the winner is Bitcoin and not Bitcoin Cash, because ever since that fork, Bitcoin has massively outperformed Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin has outperformed Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. So chains can fork. That is one thing. Or you can hope for alignment and essentially get your user base and the community agree to a change and implement that change without a fork. Is Ethereum more centrally held, meaning are there fewer people who control enough of Ethereum to make yeah, changes? There's an organization, they, they can propose things. It's not like Bitcoin really, Bitcoin doesn't belong to anyone. Right. Bitcoin is a piece of software. There's no organization, there's no company, there's no owner. And different coins are set up in different ways. They're like, most of them that have like a structure around them have more something like an like an uh, endowment structure, like the, the, the charity type of thing construct uh, and not a for-profit organization. By the way, that is also what Facebook had in mind with its Libra coin. It should have been based right. in Switzerland, but inside a essentially an endowment or charity type of mm. organization and not a for-profit organization. And then it really depends. I, I don't know the details on Ethereum and, and the organization around Ethereum, what it is that they can actually do to that, to the software in like a centralized way, in an independent way, without getting the backing of the community who uses it. This is, I really yeah. do not know. It's, it's certainly one of the arguments we hear about crypto, right? That unlike the fiat world where you can make changes and do things that is not necessarily in the holder's interest, decentralized finance, you shouldn't be able to do that. So if you can do it, and I, it sounds like you could, if you really would, it obviously takes a little bit of the of, of that argument away. But anyways, let's move on. By the way, I don't know if you follow this just before we move on to some questions more. It's another thing I found quite interesting this week was these continued outflows of the ARC mutual funds. I don't know if you follow that. Kathy Wood, yeah. I haven't looked at the chart. I don't know what the numbers is, but I picked it up on the Bloomberg News channels that it's, yeah, there are outflows. The only reason I mention it is actually going back to this debate, passive versus active, right? And where flows becomes really important and where it becomes indiscriminate selling when you have flows that goes out. And it's just an interesting thing because it's not something that we've seen a lot of yet in 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 this space, but with things like uh, the ARC funds and their enormous growth and, and so on and so forth. It's interesting if they are now seeing, even despite the markets making new all-time highs, they're seeing significant outflows. And I think actually one of their main funds, the, the $20 billion fund, is down like 30% so far this year. So interesting times. Now, we have a couple of questions. The first one is from John. I think John is in Canada, actually, speaking of Canadian wood earlier or lumber. And this is for you, Moritz. Can you talk about the methodology used to select the contract month you trade and when you decide to roll? Rob has detailed 
blog post about choosing contracts and how a role affects both open positions and his historical price series. Different markets have very different amounts of future month liquidity. Some have seasonal components, etc. I wonder how the rest of the regular contributors approach the topic of contract selection in different markets. Good question. I think it came up in, in a different shape and form already, but I really do that on a market-by-market market basis. There are some markets where I trade the front-month contract all the time. The Kakarot, the Hang Seng, the DAX, the Bund, for instance. All of these are markets where I'm essentially trading the front-month contract and I'm rolling at a point in time when the roll market is liquid. There's a roll market, spread market from, say, soon we will be rolling from, take the Bund future from June into September, right? So there's the MU roll market that has a liquidity pattern. I want to roll when that liquidity is there to have the highest probability of essentially saving bit off a spread and trading cost. Then there's other markets where that they just work in different ways, commodities and some of the short-term interest rate futures where there's more of a curve available for you to trade. And there's a liquid futures curve to trade, for instance, in euro dollars, it's three, four, five years out, something like that. You can, and, there, and all of these points are essentially liquid, they're liquid enough for me. You can point your trading strategy to a different point off the curve or on the curve if that is what you want to do. A euro dollar futures contract that is, say, deck 23 or deck 24 is going to be more volatile than the euro dollar futures contract of deck 21. So if you want to trade less size and if you want to point to a different duration point on the curve, to a different forward point on the curve, then you can do that there. Commodities, different thing, because now we're entering the space where there is a more dynamic futures curve that's also impacted by seasonalities. Seasonal contracts, so the grains, for instance, are seasonal, right? Old crop, new crop. Energies, seasonal, some of them at least. Natural gas, the most famous one. Cotton is seasonal. Some of the meat markets have seasonalities. So one, if, if you don't want to be impacted by seasonality effects, the Widowmaker, for instance, March, April in that gas, the things like that, then you may want to be exposed to them, but you may also want to make a conscious decision to say, you know what, I'm not really interested in seasonality effects and therefore I'm rolling, I'm not rolling from old crop to new crop in the grains. I'm rolling from like the same crop calendar and I'm leaving the contract out, which would essentially make me cross old crop versus new crop. So that is a that is something that I think is is at least worth thinking about and, and seeing what that does to your historical results, whether it reduces volatility, I think it should. And then finally, things like if you have these liquid curves, take for instance crude oil, most of the liquidity is in the, the June and DEC contracts in the crude markets, right? So that's M and Z. And you can very easily trade deck 23, deck 24 crude oil. It's no problem. So, but there's monthly crude oil is on a monthly expiration schedule. You could also just roll your exposure every month and go front month to front month to front month. And that, yes, gives you the most direct exposure to flat price, the spot market. But again, you could also test what does it do if you're rolling from M to Z and from Z to N. M and only two rolls per year as opposed to 12. It saves you transaction cost, it saves you bid offer. And as far as the big trends are concerned, you'll probably pick them up as well. So I do a mix, for instance, in crude oil. The, the way I decided to look at these markets is to say every one of these futures contracts, I can treat them as a market by itself. Crude oil is no longer crude oil. 
front month crude oil is one market, second month crude oil is another market, third month crude oil is yet another market, 12 month crude oil is another market. So you can create, if you wanted, I'm not doing that, but you can easily create 48 crude oil markets. And to stick with that example, you could trade one forty-eighth of the size in each of these markets and you would pick up different trends because the farther, the, the longer end of the curve will react differently than the short end of the curve to, for instance, changes in what the inventory is in Cushing, Oklahoma, for instance, right. and, and what the draws are and these type of things. So it makes sense. And what I also do is, depending on the position that I have, I want to have a look at the curvature of that futures curve. If I have a long position, I like being long markets that are in backwardation. And if they are in backwardation and I can detect the greatest amount of backwardation, the greatest amount of positive roll yield normally at the short end of the curve, then that is essentially where I want to be. If I am short, then I like markets that are in contango. And then I would go and see, okay, where is the annualized contango the greatest at the point in time that I want to roll my position or enter the position. And I may therefore then trade that point. So yeah. it really is a market by market type of thing. Yeah, we actually had that question last week from Alfred about backwardation and contango and how that might affect trends and so on and so forth. So so that's uh, super useful. And by the way, if anybody wants a reminder of how a futures contract can trade differently in front month and even compared to the second month, they all they need to do is to go back and look at what happened to crude oil last year in uh, February, March time, because it was really only the front month that went negative the other ones i don't think they did so yeah very good moritz now the last question today is from brian and you're gonna love this moritz it goes like this hypothetically if you need to get your boss up to speed as quickly as possible on bitcoin crypto space and they're willing to put in the work and time to get there what topics should they look to gain knowledge in and what blogs books article podcasts websites would you point them to and in which order and before you answer, Moritz, maybe if you could do me a favor, just mention a few, but if you could email them to me, I'll make sure that our producer puts them in the show notes so that people actually can go and check out some of these resources in, if there's a good book or something like that that you mentioned. So this is, uh, don't laugh at me. I've I never read a book on Bitcoin. I don't even own one. I don't know how many there are. I'm sure there are many books on Bitcoin. And... Well, there's the Bitcoin standard, right? That's A lot of people refer to that as a book you would want yeah, to read but I, clearly it hasn't prevented you from exactly well, i don't know it could be, it's like trend following you don't need to know much you just need to follow certain yeah rules. yeah <laughs> the internet is full of things i would recommend a website called i think coin metrics and there's a, a person there nick carter who writes yeah, a lot nick about carter. bitcoin and i think he does it in a very good way so and then there's all these blogs out there on medium.com and sure. the coin metrics, and they make reference again to, to other papers and other articles. I, I'm not sure if I would submit the Satoshi white paper to your boss and, and, and have him read that. I think at some point he or she should read it, but it probably isn't a good entry into the space. I would more st start with what is a blockchain and what does it do and what what actually is a block? What does a block contain and how does a blockchain work? And how can that be permissionless and how can that be decentralized and how can cryptography make sure that it stays that way? So yeah, this is probably how I would start. I didn't have a, a schedule when I started learning about Bitcoin. I, I, I had friends in the mining space and they pointed me to some interesting stuff and I thought they were nuts. In 2013, when they were like telling me to buy Bitcoin, I did not buy Bitcoin because I thought they were nuts. And I thought, you know, they're 
something bad has happened to them. They're now becoming criminals and they're doing that weird thing with a cryptocurrency that nobody needs and nobody wants. Seven, eight years later, my opinion has changed, right? So at some point, I got my, I, I tipped my, my toes into the water and then bought some of that stuff. And obviously that's been very good. And then once you have a position on, you start reading about it. And at, at the very beginning, I didn't understand the thing, to be honest. Yeah, it's a blockchain and it's probably going to go to zero and who knows how that thing will work. So, And I didn't spend much time on it. But then it became more expensive and created a bigger following. And that made me curious and nosy and I wanted to understand it a bit better. At least to the point where I can have a somewhat civilized conversation around the topic and not be completely clueless. So, Absolutely. Yeah. You certainly enlighten a lot of the listeners when we talk about these things. And the other thing I just want to say, and I, I think there's a great answer, Morris. The other thing is that what I also love about seeing you and Jerry trading Bitcoin as a trend follower mm -hmm. is the fact that, as we often talk about, we don't really need to be experts in any of the markets we trade if we use futures and we follow rules. And one of the things that, because one thing that, that Jerry often reminds us about is that we shouldn't be skeptical, but on the other hand, we shouldn't all, also, we shouldn't fall in love with any positions in the right. markets. And of course, the crypto space, to, to a certain extent, it is a little bit of a religion, if I can put it that way. There are some people who swear to it mm -hmm. and they swear that nothing else is going to be uh, working in the future and, and all of that stuff. And what I like about the approach we take as trend followers, I know you have two different approaches to it, but at least the approach we take as trend followers is not to get too close to it. And if it goes to the moon, great, we'll be there. And if it goes to the ground, great, we'll be there. And in 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 a good way, so to speak, from a short side. So I, I really do having this objective approach to these markets, similar to the example we've talked about today on lumber. Who would have thought that this yeah. would have happened eight times, five times your the price in a year, right? And I just like the dispassionate, objective way we look at things. Yeah, so do I. And I think this is important. And, and I always want to remind myself of that. I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I It's like this cool movement. I don't know where it's going. I think they have a lot of great ideas. I'm not sure if the regulators want to follow along with those ideas. There, there is very likely to be, let's call that a regulatory attack on that space with a probability of 100% in the not too distant future. So yeah, it's just, it's just there. It's going higher. I, I want to be long. I do that from a trend following perspective in Bitcoin for sure. But I've put a couple of other things into my portfolio just because that space seems to be ripping higher and developing so quickly. So yeah, I've sure. purchased Cardano and a couple of these things. And by the way, not Dogecoin. <laughs> I should have done that. It's just I couldn't get around to do that. But it, let me say that very clearly. If those things turn around and they start to hurt me too much, I will have no problem closing that long position. I'm not in love with Bitcoin to the grave. And if it needs to go, it needs to go. Yeah. And I think this is why it sometimes is query is it still puzzles me when you meet people who are against the philosophy that we stand for as trend followers, because I think it's a pretty pragmatic, pretty common sense approach, really. And maybe now that we've had a little bit of a good run, I love to to see the monthly reports that the industry comes out from the industry. You see a lot of these trend following strategies now making new all-time highs and so on and so forth. And it's great uh, to see that. What is not so great is to see how many people left the space as investors during the last drawdown, right? And this is unfortunately always what happens. We're 
for sure going to see a resurgence in interest, I'm sure, as the year progress and, and hopefully trends continue because suddenly people realize, oh, so I didn't have commodities in my portfolio, but now I can get it through trend following. But of course, we also know that's probably going to then be the high for a while and we're going to have some kind of correction and so on and so forth. So, of course, trend following to me is a little bit of a religion. It's the way I like to view the markets and put my money to work, even though there are, of course, other opportunities that can yield you much higher rewards if you're if you understand that. But anyway, speaking of trend following, it is nice to be able to report another good start to a month for the indices. The beta 50 index is up 1.42%. For May, up 708 for the year so far. Sokjen trend index up 1.37%, up 707 for the year. Sokjen trend index up 1.83%, up 8.87 for the year. And the short-term traders index is down about 23 basis points, but still up for the year 1.92%. MSCI World up 1.38% so far in May, up 10.76. And government bonds is up 17 basis points, but I'm sure they're down for the year, actually. So anyways, as we draw to a close, Moritz, anything in particular you want to send people to study, read, listen to? Thanks for that podcast share by the way the odd lots on lumber that's mm-hmm. a great that was my favorite in the i think the past yeah. uh, the past two weeks I, I didn't listen to all too many i just had a quick look at my cell phone to, to see what i've actually put into my ears masters in business with barry ritholz there was um, michael lewis on there that's my pick for this week exactly yeah. so he's uh he's just come out with a new book premonition i think it's called and it's again about the u.s and u.s politics and and, and how the pandemic was handled haven't read it yet, uh, but he gave a bit of an intro uh, on that show, and he's just uh, you know one of the most excellent storytellers, Michael Lewis. That is Absolutely. so. So I wanted to listen to that. And what else? I think yeah, Mike Covella's come out with a new book, "The Trend Following yeah. Mindset," featuring Tom Basso, and there was a podcast with Tom Basso on the Trend Following Show with with Mike Covell. And there's nothing really new about Tom Basso. Everything I listen like to him. Listening to us more, it's there's exactly nothing there's new. nothing. Transforming right. trader, <laughs> retired. He now enjoys gardening, and he's a golf nut. And but the way he comes along, it's just just a nice guy. I've never met him. I wish at some point I will, but it's just yeah. The true wisdom, I think, and I really hope that's what people take away from all our conversations. And it's as well, it's really what is said between the lines, and also that. People, and this goes for myself certainly as well, you need to hear things many times and in different ways to truly internalize it. And I think that's really what what I hope we can do through our conversations. Yeah, there will be new stuff from time to time, and, and that's great. But just to help people internalize the philosophy of trend following and, of course, yes, help with certain practical aspects of it. But if once you've internalized it, then you will be part of these great runs that we have and and will continue to have in the future. I have no doubt about that. This is a strategy that it's not going to go away. It's been around in liquid form for more than 50 years, and it's not going to go away or it's not going to change in terms of it, it its effectiveness, unlike many other strategies out there. So hopefully that's what people take away from our conversation each week. On that note, let's wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you did, we certainly would be grateful if you would head over to iTunes, 
leave a rating and review and any other platform that you come across the podcast, we would be ever so grateful for that because they do help us to be discovered by more uh, people. And next week, I'm joined by Jerry. And if you want to leave or if you want to send us a question or two, please do so by sending them to info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll do our best to give you a good answer as well. So from Moritz and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 